Hey, there we go. All righty. Will told me, he says, don't turn off your mic this time. I promise you, I don't touch it. It just miraculously does that. I think it's a message from God or something like that. You know, I'm only supposed to speak to myself. Anyway, uh, we just got back from Houston last night, and uh, I only had a chance of speaking at a women's conference in the early part of the week, but we got to hang out with the grandkids in 80-degree weather, 40% humidity. Doesn't get much better than that. We could definitely feel the difference as we walked off the plane in Cedar Rapids uh, back into reality, but that's okay. That'll be catching up here soon enough, and then we'll all be wishing that we had some of this coolness back, right? So this morning, we are celebrating the triumphal entry, as it is frequently referred to, uh, Palm Sunday, and we're going to be looking not at just one passage, even though we're focused on Luke chapter 19, but we're going to be looking at all four accounts in the Gospels. Uh, how many of you have been to or seen, maybe a more realistic question, a coronation? Uh, those of us who live in the United States of America, our closest cousins that celebrate the coronation would probably be the British Isles. Uh, Great Britain has a coronation, Scotland has a coronation, and so forth. Uh, they're quite a pageantry. There's something to behold, to be seen. Uh, but you'd have to be pretty old to have seen the last coronation as Queen Elizabeth II was coronated on June 2nd of 1953. But even then, as humble as maybe the circumstances were uh, in that day and age in post-World War II, uh, still the coronation was a lot of pomp and circumstance. Over four billion pounds were spent on that particular coronation. In American money, that would be close to seven million dollars. Now, if you take that from 1953 to today, I don't even want to think about what the next coronation will cost, and I think we're heading to another coronation. The uh, next in line doesn't have to wait for the actual uh, coronation in order to be king or queen. That happens immediately, legally, as soon as the previous monarch passes. So Queen Elizabeth was able to become queen, however, they had to wait for the official months of mourning while the nation went through grieving over the previous king, and then she was finally installed. Uh, there's a lot of people that go into a coronation in the British Isles. Uh, there's all kinds of lords, uh, different people who have different titles and different responsibilities. Some of those people that are uh, more or less resurrected at those times uh, don't even have a normal office during the regular day-in, day-out work of the British government. Uh, they haven't been around since the 1200s, but for the coronation, uh, two people are declared to have these titles, and they are there specifically to help the new monarch through this process. Uh, various barons are allowed to be part of this. Uh, traditionally, the barons carry in the canopy under which the queen or king walks, and as they come to the altar where the uh, head of the church confers upon them the title of defender of the church, uh, that still is a a mixed uh, signal in the British Isles. There is no separation of church and state as the church is seen as the purview of the king or queen. And the barons get to do that. They get to be part of that. 
Uh, there are so, so many, many different people that have a role in a coronation. Uh, it would boggle the mind for us as Americans to think of what we would maybe consider an excess amount of money spent, of uh, clothing, uniforms that would never be used again, but nevertheless, it is traditional. Uh, it is rife with pride and national treasure. The crown that Queen Elizabeth II wears, or at least wore on that particular day, weighs five pounds, made of ermine and jewels and gold. Her husband is also declared on that same day the prince consort, and he has his own crown, though smaller. So it is no end of wealth being demonstrated. And then there is the appearance from the balcony of the newly uh, imbued monarch, the king or queen of the land, to declare who they were and who they are before the people. On one day, you're just Elizabeth. On the next day, you're the queen of all that Britain owns. You immediately have tremendous wealth. The Windsor family is one of the most uh, richest families in the world. Uh, if you ever travel to Britain and you get to see the crown jewels, Yes, they are owned uh, by the British nation, but also partially by the Windsor family. It is their right, uh, according to the British rule. The queen has to agree, the king has to agree to follow parliamentary decisions. They now just function in more of a figurehead or advisory role in their government. But still, for all that, I think the world would feel like something was missing if we didn't get to see this. Such an event... Next in line will be Charles, if he lives long enough. He's 73, the queen is 95. We don't know how that's going to work out, but we probably are going to assume that another coronation is just around the corner, maybe a couple of them. And yet, as we open up the Word of God this morning, we're looking at a different coronation, one that is unique, one that is in stark contrast to everything that I just described Jesus, having walked amongst his people for three years, having ministered, taught, uh, loved, uh, done miracles with, he is here, right before the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Judea, the seat of the Davidic government. In his mind, and at the bidding of his father, he knows that it is time for his coronation. Uh, if you wish to turn, I want to first start in John. We're going to look at chapter 12. John 12 gives us an interesting perspective, as in most of John's gospel, he tells us things that none of the other synoptic gospels will tell us. In John chapter 12, it says, uh, beginning in verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. <coughs> crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king, don't miss that word, even the king of Israel. And then Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
Now here's the point of explanation. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. That's the whole point. Jesus had been ministering for three years. Nothing had fundamentally changed in who this man was. This itinerant preacher out of Galilee. (coughs) Jesus was coming to Jerusalem for a showdown with the leadership. Last time I preached, I kind of went through a very detailed structure of how the government and religious leaders functioned together. That the Sadducees were more or less appointed by foreign governments in their history, that they were the ones who did not believe in the resurrection, they were the ones who had the power, they were the ones that usually filled the roles of high priests. The Pharisees, the protector of the law, so they thought, the Torah, were zealous for the things of God. And they felt it was their duty to make sure that everyone who said that they came in the name of the Lord actually had come from the Lord. Scribes, lawyers, all of the retinue that went with the Temple Mount area were assembled in fear of this man that was approaching the city. Jesus was coming. The king was coming. They didn't understand it. The people had seen Jesus come to Bethany and raise a man who had been dead for at least four days Come forth, Lazarus. And they saw this dead man walk. And they took that as an obvious sign that indeed the promised Messiah, the king, was coming and in fact had come. So on this morning, Sunday morning, the week of Passion Week, this is going to kick us off into the whole telling of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection as we go in the weeks in the future here as we approach Easter but on this morning Jesus comes out and the crowds are waiting for him there's two really different sets of crowds going on here as Jesus gets ready to come into Jerusalem there are those who are coming out of Jerusalem streaming down the temple road to Jesus screaming and crying Hosanna Hosanna The king is here. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And behind him is Jesus' usual group of people, his 12 disciples and all those disciples that were following that were not deemed as apostles but still had important functions in the ministry of the Lord. Those who believed sincerely and deeply in their hearts. You might think of them as really being just a division of two groups of people with Christ in the center upon a cult. But actually, they were two fundamentally different people. Those coming out who were impressed by Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead were coming out because they loved what Jesus had done. They wanted him to do more. Maybe he would restore all things. Maybe he would raise more people from the dead. Maybe he would heal some people. They'd seen it. They were looking for signs. But they were acting in a temporary faith. (coughs) This 
is probably God. This is possibly the king. And in faith, they decided to celebrate him as such. The group behind him, his disciples, and those who had been walking with him for many months were absolutely confident that this was the king. They knew who they were following. And whereas they may not have been as loud in their vocalization of his monarchy, they were by far the deeper and more committed to the cause of the Messiah. And as they go towards the road that ascends to Jerusalem, Jesus orders them to go get a colt. Go get a colt. There's one waiting for me. And the disciples, as it says here in John, they were, they were kind of like, well, how would he know that? And in all of the passages that we're going to look at this morning, if we look at Luke chapter 19, we see the same thing. Uh, the man comes out and says, why are you untying this colt? And they answer, well, the Lord has need of it. They're repeating what Jesus told them to repeat. Just say to them, if anybody questions you, the Lord has need of it, and he will give it to you. And sure enough, they did that. Now, there was a uh, process, a, a law in a sense, that allows a person of elevated status to do that. In the day of Israel, in the days of Jesus, there was the rule of Agaria, which allowed a principled person, someone who had uh, elevated status in the community, including a rabbi, to temporarily impress into service property that belonged to someone else. As my wife and I were talking about this week, we said, well, you know, it's kind of like you see in a cop show on TV where the cop jumps in the road and points his gun at a car to stop and tells the person, get out, <clears throat> I've got need of your car. They jump in. You know, how many of us have ever really seen that in life? <coughs> I think if we really had a guy pointing a gun at us and telling us he needed our car, we would gun it with the gas pedal and get out of there. But that's what happens here. These guys just go and take a colt. This is a mode of transportation. Take him. Now, Jesus didn't need this. He wasn't taking it because he was tired or infirm. It was a symbol. We read that in here. It was a symbol. It's a quote from Zechariah. It is a messianic prophecy come to life. And it seems so appropriate that Jesus would actually ascend the road into the city riding this colt. I appreciate John, the apostle's honesty, as he's writing about this, because he's the one that says, the disciples didn't fully appreciate this. They didn't understand why this was significant at this what time. It wasn't until later that they began to think about it. Oh yeah, that passage in Zechariah. We now know, you know, if we go back and read that carefully, in John 12, let me get back to that. It says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. How appropriate. On Jesus' coronation day, he hits all the marks. He's taking upon himself, as humble as it may seem to us today, all the signs and marks of a king. David rode on a colt in his kingdom. We see it again and again. 
people of importance in the Old Testament have a cult in the kingdom. Jesus is writing a cult. He is more or less stating for anybody who has eyes to see that I am declaring myself king. Now, compared to what I just said about the coronation of our modern-day monarchs, this seems very humble indeed. A group of poor peasants preceding another poor peasant upon the back of a donkey, riding into a city, people screaming and shouting, Hosanna, and yet it creates dread and fear in the hearts of the Jewish Jerusalem leadership. It's at this point that they begin the plot to kill him. He's become way too popular, way too powerful. They see the people out there spreading their cloaks upon the ground as if he was really the king. And some went and grabbed leafy branches, it says, and they waved it at him, part of the Jewish tradition, knowing that kings always are perfumed with a royal scent. And when you wave those branches, you just spread that aura about. Jesus may still have had that smell upon him after being anointed some time before. And they wanted that, if not just in symbolism, but in actuality, the smell of royalty. They saw him as a king. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees, for once, two enemies, decided to come together to destroy this upstart, this man, who as humble as his coronation appeared to be, had the ability to rock the foundation of their ruling. The people scream and shout, Hosanna, the king, Hosanna, the king, Hosanna, the king. And the coronation doesn't end here. Over the next couple of weeks on our Sunday mornings, we're going to see how his coronation continues. Because you see, this Jesus had a whole entire different purpose in coming. Unlike Queen Elizabeth II or any other previous British monarch, or any king in the world for that matter, he wasn't there to receive the accolades of people, their tribute, their taxes, their sons, their daughters into service. He was there to give, to lay down his life. He says in one of his stories that unless a piece of grain, a seed of grain falls to the ground and dies, nothing can grow. He was talking about himself. And they knew it. Those in that second crowd behind the colt going into the city, his followers, his disciples, they fully understood what was going to happen. And they tried to talk him out of it. Lord, you don't need to go there. Lord, you don't, you've got to know what's going to happen if you go into Jerusalem. These men hate you. They will try to kill you. And much to their chagrin, after this uh, ceremony on Sunday is over, where he is shouted and proclaimed the king, what does he do to the disciples' horror? He goes into the temple, and he cleanses it. He accuses them of being money changers. 
lovers of wealth, not following the word of God. If that hadn't gotten their attention before with this cult and with the people shouting, that certainly got their attention. And so it begins the week in which Jesus will give his life and his coronation continues. His crown doesn't weigh five pounds with diamonds and ermine. His crown turns out to be a thorny crown placed upon his head by mocking Roman soldiers. His coronation will not end with the balcony scene of him greeting his people in joyous triumph. Instead, when he's presented to his people, he's going to hear, crucify him, crucify him. The same people that shout to crown him on Sunday are by Thursday demanding his death. A fickle crowd, to say the least, but aren't we all? That is the story of the gospel. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the point of this coronation. His ultimate act is to get upon that cross, to have those spikes driven into his wrists and to his feet, to be lifted up in shame and scorn, to be separated from his heavenly father, and to bring about the death of death that the kingdom of life and death would be turned over to him because he, the perfect man, the sinless one, would give his life in a manner, in a deserved to so, the way that we should die for our sins. And when that glorious morning comes on Easter Sunday, when Jesus is resurrected by the power of God, the coronation continues. And after 40 days, he ascends to the right hand of God, where he sits today. It's an amazing scene. And yet we come back right away to this humility, to this, to this dirt, to the dust, to the heat, to this man. Not dressed in finery. He doesn't have robes placed upon him. He's just the way he was yesterday. Put upon a colt. Coming into the kingdom that he so badly wanted to love and care for. Some of the gospels have the recording of Jesus saying, Oh, Jerusalem, how I loved you. you know, and then he says, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. He shows a great lament at the people's rejection of who he is. He is the king. The world misses that story. The world doesn't understand it. They look at us celebrating Palm Sunday. We had kids out front waving fake palm branches at people as they came in. I heard many of you say, that was really neat. That was so cool. The world that doesn't know the story of Christ thinks that is really strange. I have no idea why they would think that is so important. We see it as a foretelling of what's coming in the future. The story is not over. No, not by a long shot. This is not the only story of this king. If you turn to Revelation chapter 19, I want to introduce the king that we're going to see. A lot of you have spent this last year reading on your own or have been involved in a study reading uh, Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. Great book. Love it. It gives us a picture of who Jesus is. Well, let me tell you something. 
there's another side to Christ. This king that we worship, he's coming again. And he's coming in power. Uh, if you want to, you can read along with me. Verse 6 of chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult. Give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Drop over to verse 11. Then I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. If you know Jesus this morning as your Lord and Savior, that should just make your liver quiver. Right? I mean, this is the king. This is who the people of Jerusalem were anticipating when they ran out singing, Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. They wanted this, this. And instead, they've got a wooden cross and they got accusations and they got stakes and as far as they were concerned it was a short-lived rebellion that was just another prophet who thought he was more than he said he was who was killed by the jealous rulers and end of story wrong see the triumphal entry is still to happen we call what happened in these gospel accounts the triumphal entry, but they really are just a predecessor to the real triumphal entry. When John the Apostle, who's writing this book of Revelation, gets a chance to see this, notice the contrast in there. I saw the one, behold, a white horse, not a colt this time. Distinct word in the original language. This is a horse, a war charger. He's not coming in peace. He's not going to bend before the ruling authorities. He is here to set things straight. There's a flame of fire on his head and many diamonds. That's his crown. It'll outdo any coronation crown that the world has ever seen. He has a name written that no one knows but himself, clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. Everything in this is an imagery of violence, of justice, an execution of the wrongs of the past made right in the present. The king is coming to reclaim that which is rightfully his. From his mouth comes a sharp sword through which to strike down the nations. 
And we recognize the passage from Psalms. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Oh my goodness. On his robe and on his thigh, this is his coronation name. King of kings. Lord of lords. Who could stand before such a monarch? No one can. And later we're told that this king, who had already been seen in this book of opening uh, scrolls of wrath and dumping out bowls of wrath upon the earth, is now ready to take his rightful nation, his rightful kingdom. The only question that you and I have today is, whose kingdom do you belong to? Whose kingdom do you belong to? We have to give our lives to Christ because the king is coming. He is coming. If you don't believe me, I'm going to finish this morning, but let's look at Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is talking about this very thing when he tells us the parable of what's called the ten virgins. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers. Hurry, hurry, right? And buy for yourselves. And while they were gone to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, saying, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now, if you've been in the church for any period of time, go back to the 70s, you're probably tired of hearing this parable. Uh, during the time when we were just so focused on prophecy and prophecy conferences, this was preached so many times. And then something unique has happened. We got tired of prophecy. We felt like, oh, there was too much emphasis on that, so we'll do away with that. Even the EFCA conferences said, oh, we believe in the glorious return of Christ, but we don't want to get too specific and might offend too many. I say to you today, we should be living with this particular parable front printed in our word, in our hearts, because the king is coming. This whole story is about the coming of the king. Remember, this is Jesus talking, so the first advent has already occurred. Christmas, he's been there, and he's telling them, as to probably in answer to their questions, how do we know when you're coming back, Jesus? And he tells them this parable. It goes right along with previous things that Matthew records. Like in the days of Noah, people were being given in marriage and so forth. They totally missed the signs of God's pending judgment with the flood. So will it be when I return. And in this story, it specifically mentions a marriage feast, which we just read in the book of Revelation, that the bridegroom is coming. Imagery used often for Christ. 
The church, we are the bride. Those who have responded to the offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whose lives are hid with him, who have become new citizens in Christ, who Jesus has atoned for their sins, has propitiated their sins, who now belong into a new family, the family of God. We're going to be the ones in our faithfulness that have enough oil in our lamps to go in the door when the bridegroom comes. But there's going to be a lot, many, who are going to be caught without oil, who will be deemed unwise. Jesus says at the end of this, in verse 13, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Wow. You know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus is returning. The king is coming. It's too easy to think, well, people have been saying that forever, Dave. Uh, every time we get into a rough patch somewhere in this world, there's some preacher that stands up and says, oh yes, Jesus is returning. You better be ready. And they've always been wrong. Well, don't you think they were saying the same thing in Jesus' day? The king is coming. He's so much closer to coming now than ever before. We can truthfully say that. Nothing is impeding his return. If the triumphal entry, if the Passion Week, if Easter tells us nothing, it's not just a celebration of what happened 2,000 years ago. It's a certainty. Put this way. God raised Jesus from the dead. He's alive. His grace, his mercy prolongs the time of his return so that as many as possible can come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. When he does return, it will not be gentle and lowly. It will be in wrath. It will be in justice. He will execute power. He will do all those things that the people were crying for that we read about in the Gospels. Hosanna to the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So if you really believe that, how would that change your life? If you knew that Christ was returning by the end of this week, would that change the way you live? If you knew that Christ was coming at the end of this week, who would you tell? Who would you want with you? What's more important than telling your neighbor, your family, the truth about why you have a new life. I can't wait for this coronation. It's been going on for 2,000 years, and when that conclusion comes, I, for one, hope to be right there to see him, to see the king in all of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for your love and grace and mercy. I pray, Lord, now that you would just bless us as we enter into our marriage feast, our reminder of what it took for us to have new life in you. Oh, Father, we pray that we would not leave anyone behind, that we would spread the news, the good news, to any and all that would ask, and even to those who would not ask. Father, may we be bold in our witness. Father, the only way to be truly ready is to be redeemed disciple makers. 
We want to be those obedient people. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.